Well, open your Bibles and turn on your devices to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to pick up in our study in verse 30. We're going to talk about words. How many know our words are important? Yes, indeedy. Jesus has a number of things to say to us about our words. This, is, this section in Matthew's Gospel chronicles the rise of persecution that leads to his ultimate rejection, especially by the religious leaders. So opposition, persecution, accusations against Jesus. And it's in this section where we have been studying where all of Jesus' ministry and his miracles the religious leaders have so hardened themselves, now they're confronting him and they're attributing all of his miraculous acts and works to the devil himself. To which Jesus responds to them. He says in verse 30, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers. That's strong language, huh? Who's he addressing there? The Pharisees, the religious leaders particularly. He says, you brood of vipers. How can you, who are evil, say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. The evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned." This is a serious warning, serious warning. Somebody estimated that from the first good morning to the last good night of every day, we engage in roughly 30 conversations throughout that day. And the number of words that we, we utilize during those conversations could be used to fill somewhere between 60 and 70 books in a page. Now, you extrapolate that over a year. You speak enough words, on average, the average person, average day, speaks enough words to fill 100 books, roughly 200 pages long each. That's a lot of words. That's a lot of words. Proverbs tells us that when words are many, sin is not absent. 
We need to be careful about our words. The most self-damning words ever spoken had just been uttered by the Jewish religious leaders toward Jesus. Notice with me verse 24 of chapter 12. They say, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow, meaning Jesus, drives out demons. So they're attributing to Satan himself the miraculous works of the Holy Spirit through Jesus. They're not attributing to God, to the Spirit. And Jesus will say to them that they have just blasphemed the Holy Spirit, which is the only unforgivable sin. And we're going to we're going to study that. We're going to discover that. We want to understand what that means. But in the context of this passage, Jesus is going to use this occasion to teach us about our words and the importance of our words. Is that a good subject? Oh, yes. I promise you some of you today are going to go, ooh, ooh, ooh. Words are important. They're very important. Because as he says in the last verse of this passage, verse 37, those words that we speak determine our eternal destiny. Words are very, very important. In the book of James, in chapter 3, James's letter, the first 12 verses of that chapter, James talks about the tongue. And he says in the context of that passage that our words either bless God or curse God. Our words either bless men or curse men. He says also that the tongue is a world of evil. Wow. Most people don't even think that way. That the tongue is a world of evil, a fire, a restless evil full of deadly poison. Did you ever think about your tongue that way? That's what it says. That's what the Bible tells us. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus says, What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean. Rather, what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. All, the, all of our words, all of our words are important. And I submit to you, there's a terrible responsibility placed on us for the words we speak. This is why we should be quick to listen and slow to speak. Most of the time, we're quick to speak and slow to listen. Isn't that true? We're wanting to give our opinion, what we think. We're always talking. We cut people off rather than listening. Slow to speak, quick to listen. Words are important. The first thing that Jesus is going to teach us about our words and the words we speak, we find in verses 31 and 32 of our passage. He says, in effect, blasphemous words, blasphemous words against the Holy Spirit are unforgivable. They are unforgivable. I think the warning here is unmistakable. Notice, notice this fact. 
What kind of sin is this? It's unforgivable. It's a tongue sin. It's not a, it's not a body sin. It's, not a, it, it's a tongue sin that's unforgivable. That should give us pause. And I encourage you to go on your own to consider the seriousness of all tongue sins. James, again, chapter one, verses, chapter three, verse, verses one through 12. Write that reference down. Go look at it. Study it. Meditate on it yourself. Read what James has to say about the tongue and tongue sins. Now, Jesus is giving a warning. He's not giving the warning to the Pharisees and to the religious leaders. He's giving a warning to the people who are listening to this conversation because wherever he went, he was opposed by the religious leaders and there's always crowds around him. And he gives this warning about this particular sin. First of all, to strike fear in the hearts of those who would border on committing this unpardonable sin. And secondly, to stir a reverence and a repentance in them towards God. Can people become very casual about God? Yeah, we can be very casual about him. He becomes kind of peripheral to our life because we're, after all, the central thing, aren't we? It's all about us, what we want, and we pay lip service to him most of the time. And so it's important for us to understand the the, the, the importance of having him be the centerpiece of our life. Our reverence for him and our repentance towards him. He goes on to say the one sin for which there is no forgiveness is not the sin against Jesus. He says, you can blaspheme me, the son of man, all day long and that will be forgiven. But rather, it's a sin against the Holy Spirit. Now, why is that? Why is that? There's one simple reason. You see, the Holy Spirit is the person who works inside of us. The Holy Spirit is the person who works in our hearts. It is he who convicts, John says, who convicts the world of guilt in regard to sin, righteousness, and judgment. John gives us that insight and understanding. The one word, if I can say this, the one word that describes the work of the Holy Spirit is that word conviction. He is convicting. He is convicting. Without the conviction of the Holy Spirit, there is no real salvation. You can believe in Jesus all day and all night, but if you've not been convicted of your sin, not been convicted of your guilt and what true righteousness is all about, you have nothing. You have nothing. We'll talk about this further. I think all of us have experienced some things, some of these things. You see something, you feel something, you sense something, you hear something about God's goodness and his love. It's a prompting. It's a prompting. We all, we all know the... the, the uh, analogy of seeing a sunset, right? And you go, ooh, ah, or some, some marvelous thing, or a brand new baby, or you know, 
God uses all of these things to get our attention. And they all speak of his goodness. They all speak of his love. They're promptings. They're convictions. He's drawing us to him. And the person who feels and sees these things and senses these things should also correspondingly have a sense of a need to surrender themselves to God, that which is greater than they are, not remain independent. Does this make sense? Some of you? Okay, good. The Holy Spirit convicts a person's heart to believe. You can't deny it. He's, something's, something's got me. Something's got to hold my attention. Something's, I keep having my head turned. However you want to describe it, however you've experienced it, God is at work. His Spirit's at work to get your attention, to prompt you, to convict you, to believe. But you may go on insisting on your own way. No, no, I, I, I want what I want when I want it. In the face of these promptings, you may go on refusing to acknowledge God and surrender your life to Him. You dig your heels in and say, no. I'm not ready. The longer you say, I'm not ready, the further and further away you move away from and become more and more insensitive to these convictions, which are imperative. You may be choosing to be blind. You may actually make decisions to blind yourself, to harden yourself against those prompts, against those convictions, the things that, that you've seen and experienced and sensed and felt. And you eventually become so hardened that God's goodness, the truth of his goodness, the truth of his love, you don't even recognize them anymore. You lose all sense of those things. That person then reaches such a point of hardness that God is no longer heard, no longer seen, no longer experienced, no longer acknowledged. It happens. It happens far too often. And this person has, in effect, blasphemed God's spirit and counted his convictions, his convicting work, just like those miracles that Jesus did, all calling their attention to him as worthless. Worthless. No good. And our hearts become hardened to those promptings. At that point, God's spirit has been so blasphemed that that blasphemy is now no longer forgivable. Now notice also what the unforgivable sin actually is. In the simplest and clearest terms, the unforgivable sin is this. Stubborn rejection. Stiff-necked refusal. Obstinate unbelief.
I once knew a family in our church, and the man, the husband, the father of the family, this, these phrases would describe his life. And I would make every effort to reach him, to talk to him. He had, he had nothing, well, nothing to do with me. He was on his deathbed in the hospital. The family called me in an effort to one last try to share the hope of Jesus with him. With his dying breath, he cursed me, cursed Jesus, cursed God, and cursed the Holy Spirit. I watched him drift off into eternity, cursing. He had so hardened himself, his family, all believers. He knew the truth, but he didn't respond to the prompts. He didn't respond to the convictions. He thought he knew better. I have no other conclusion except to think and believe he's now for all eternity in hell. What a horrible, horrible thought. It was absolutely tragic. You see, when the Holy Spirit convicts a person to turn to God and that person rejects and rejects, that rejection becomes stubborn. When the Holy Spirit convicts a person to turn to God and that person refuses and refuses, that refusal becomes stiff-necked. When the Holy Spirit convicts a person to turn to God and that person disbelieves and disbelieves, that unbelief becomes obstinate. That person deadens his or her spirit against the convictions of the Holy Spirit and that person develops a deep-rooted malice against God. This, this was this man's case. He had a deep-rooted... He could not tell you why. He just hated God. He hated anything that represented God. He hated the church. He hated me. But you couldn't get him to put his finger on why. It was a, it was a long progression of rejecting and rejecting and rejecting and refusing those prompts of God's Spirit in his life. What about Christians? What about us? What about professing Christians? Can we reject the promptings of the Spirit? Can we harden ourselves against the Spirit? Yes, we can. Yes, we can. What does the writer of Hebrews say? Don't harden yourself when you hear His voice. I do not believe in the, in the, in the phrase, once saved, always saved. The Bible doesn't teach it. The Bible teaches perseverance. He who perseveres to the end, he will be saved. How do I persevere? I persevere by continuing to respond to his prompts. I respond to his leadings. The Bible tells me, the New Testament tells me, walk after the Spirit, follow the Spirit, follow the leading of the Spirit. You can't just say, I believe in Jesus, and sit down and say, I'm done, I'm in. I have a fire insurance policy. No. It's a life of growth. It's a life of maturing. It's a life of becoming more and more like Jesus. It is active. 
We don't do that on our own. We do it because the Spirit leads us and we follow His prompts. We follow His leading. We follow His convicting us. Anybody here been convicted by the Spirit about something? Uh-huh. Ooh. Some of you are sitting here this morning. By the time I'm done, you're going to go, oh, man. He was talking to me. No, God was talking to you. Convicting you. In areas where you need convicting, and the issue is, are you going to repent and respond and reverence God? The person who insists on his or her own way, insisting on his or her own way, too long, refusing to surrender to God while the heart is yet still soft enough to be touched, that person ends up blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Unforgivable. What a warning. What a warning. Are we creatures, let me ask you this, are we, are we creatures of conditioning and habit? Oh, yeah. We do things by habit. We're always conditioning ourselves, right? What a warning to creatures of conditioning and habit. A warning against conditioning ourselves to reject and resist the Holy Spirit. Christians are vulnerable to this. You can never say, you know what, I know, I know that I'm saved with absolute definitive assurance. I know that's a debatable issue. The only way you can really possibly have confidence is in the fact that you are persevering in the faith. You are growing more and more like Jesus. You are bringing God greater and greater glory by how you live your life. You're all in. Not to coin a new phrase. What a call. What a call to stir reverence. What a call to stir repentance towards God. How we need to surrender to God every single day. Would you agree? Jesus says, look, you've got to every day deny yourself. Doesn't he? Every day you pick up your cross. Every day you evidence I am following you. I'm not leaning on my own understanding. I don't have it all together. I need you desperately every day. What a call. How we need to surrender to him while our hearts are still soft enough to be touched. You come to the Lord's table as we have done this morning. What a privilege. What a privilege. Jesus says, he gives us this, this, this little program to, to, to remember him by. It says so much. I know I'm coming, I'm coming to, to be with the body this morning, so I'm, I get up in the morning and I'm preparing my heart and my mind and I'm anticipating the Lord's table and I know I must do something. What must I do? Confess my sins and repent. As I come down the aisle anticipating the table and taking a little piece of matzah and a little cup of juice and saying, Lord Jesus, search my heart. 
to show me the hurtful ways in me that I might repent. John says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. It's not just a perfunctory exercise. We're making a huge statement that we are responding every single day to his leading and his promptings. We come to the table to be reminded and prompted once again and reminded once again of his mercy and his grace to which we bow and we say, thank you, thank you. We have no idea what we have been saved from and what we have been saved to. We have not a clue. This is why Paul says, no eye has, heard, has heard, no, no or, or, or seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived of that which God has prepared for those who truly love him. Can you hardly wait to get to heaven? Man, it's going to blow our minds. Now, in trying to determine just who it is that commits this unforgivable sin, two things are known. Two things are absolutely known. First of all, the blood of Jesus cleanses from every sin. There is not a single sin that cannot be forgiven except the obstinate unbelief against the convictions of the Holy Spirit. The second thing we know for sure, there is no hope for salvation except through Jesus Christ and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. If you don't know you need to be saved, it, you'll never be saved. You won't see a need to come to Jesus. How many times have you talked to me? Maybe you said this in your own life. So I'm a good person. I'm okay. I don't rape, pillage, and plunder. True? But when the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin, and all of a sudden you see it, and you go, oh my gosh. I'm desperate. Then you hear the gospel, you hear the good news about Jesus having died for those sins and, you, and you're invited to come and surrender your life to him and be forgiven for all that stuff. You go, <gasps> but if you've never been convicted by the Holy Spirit, you see no need. You see no need for Jesus. He's just another religious person. Now, if you are concerned, this is important now, if you are concerned about having committed the unforgivable sin, you haven't. Why? Because you're concerned. If you weren't concerned, we have something to be concerned about, don't we? I hear that periodically, and this is one of the most confusing doctrines for people. This, this whole issue of blaspheming the Holy Spirit and the unforgivable sin. And people over the years say, Pastor, I'm concerned that I've committed the unforgivable sin. Before they can go any further, I say, you haven't. Well, how do you know? I haven't told you my sin. You don't need to. The fact that you're concerned that you did it says to me you haven't done it. Are you tracking with me? So some of you can probably exhale. First John 1 John 1.9, I love this verse. I love this verse. If we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to do what? Forgive us 
all of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Wow. And all it requires is that we humble ourselves and we come and we confess. Confess our sins. Isaiah says this. He says, let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will, notice this, I love this, freely pardon. <sighs> freely pardon. You turn to him you turn to him because he has spoken into your life and you cannot deny it. You don't reject it and resist it. You turn to him. He will freely pardon you. Amen. Freely pardon you. And by the way, Jesus goes on to say the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the only sin that is not forgiven in this age or the next. In Mark's gospel, in chapter 3, verse 29, Mark calls this the eternal sin, forever and ever and ever. Now, the second thing that Jesus teaches us about our words that we speak, he says our words either confess or deny him. Our words either confess or deny him. Now, look with me at verse 33. He says, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. Now, Jesus, in that verse, Jesus is the tree. Now, he's not speaking directly to the religious leaders now. He's speaking again to all the people who are hangers on listening. And he's demanding something of them. He's demanding that they make a decision. Yes or no? Are you in or out? He says a good tree gives off what kind of fruit? Good fruit. He says you've witnessed all the miracles. You've witnessed the healings. You've witnessed the deliverances. You've witnessed the fact that I've raised people from the dead. Look at the fruit. Do, do people typically, do we find ourselves typically equivocating? keeping our options open, not necessarily being all in, being, being double-minded. Anybody know what I'm talking about? One foot in the kingdom, one foot in the world. Yeah, we, we're very good at that sort of stuff. So he says to those people, and he says by extension to us also, those of us who may be equivocating, those of us who may be wavering, sitting on the fence, and believe me, there are lots and lots of people in churches who are doing that. He says to him, decide. 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 You've got to make a decision. Either I'm good or I'm bad. Make the decision. Quit vacillating. Quit equivocating. Judge me to be good and my fruit good, or else judge me to be bad and my fruit bad. I challenge you. I challenge you, he says. Either I am who I say I am, the Messiah, the Savior, God in the flesh, or I'm not. Either my miracles are good for you and good for your life, or they're not. Make a decision. He knows human nature, and he knows how human nature vacillates. 
He said, I'm known by my fruit. Look at the fruit. There's no middle ground. You can't be neutral. You're either for me or against me. So quit, quit playing the hypocrite and quit being half-hearted about me. He's calling us. He's calling us to confess him or deny him. Our words do that. And the words come from where? They come from our heart, don't they? He'll say in another place, he say, you can't serve two masters. We still, we still try to do that. We still try to serve two masters. We, we still try to serve the world and, 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 and be of the world and, and, and serve him. And very often the world wins out. Truth be known, we try to serve ourselves. We put ourselves first rather than him. Suffering and sacrifice are not our favorite things. Is that a fair statement? They are not our favorite things. But he calls us to a life of what? Sacrifice and even suffering. For his sake. It may not make any rational sense to you. How many times have you gone through something and said, why am I, what, what's going on here? Why me? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I trust you. Job said what? Even though he slays me, still I will what? I'll trust him. Job, who'd lost everything, and all of his friends were against him. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, speaks about no longer being tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. Not equivocating. Make a decision. Again in James, James in chapter 1 talks about a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. If you see a person who's un unstable in all their ways, you know why they're unstable? Because they're double-minded. They haven't come to a place of making a decision about him. The ultimate reality. If your life is back and forth, upside down, inside out, it's unstable, you need to get back to the basics before you harden your heart too much and you need to come to Jesus, you need to repent of your sins and say, Jesus, save me. I'm in. I'm all in with you. Boom, that's it. I'm done. If you don't, your instability continues to grow and to grow and it encompasses your life. We have... We have literally thousands and thousands of people on the streets of our cities today who are unstable in every imaginable way. And I promise you, it's because of this. Double-minded, uncommitted, tragic, tragic. In 1 Kings chapter 18, how many know what's, what that chapter is about? First Kings chapter 18. Okay, Dougie. Two of us. All right. How many have heard of Elijah? How many heard of the prophets of Baal? Uh, more of you remember it. It's jogging your memories. Remember when Elijah called the people up on Mount Carmel and he, he told them, he says, either Baal is God or the Lord is God. We're going to have a contest to see. What did he do? <laughs> called fire down from heaven, didn't he? 
What is he saying? He's calling people to a decision. Joshua did the same thing. On the eve of taking the people into the promised land, he said, now, listen, either the Baals and the gods of Egypt are your gods or the Lord is God. You choose today whom you will serve. Today. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We have a tendency, naturally, humanly speaking, to equivocate. Trying to cover all the bases, keep our options open. Jesus says, you decide today. And you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. You can only truly do that if you believe in your heart. The third thing that Jesus tells us about our words is that our words expose our heart. Our words really tell us and tell other people the kind of person we really are. The heart, he's not talking about the organ. The heart is, is uh, the, the inner part of us, our rational and volitional capacity, our thinking and volitional choice-making. A person's words express one of three things. One of three things. Either you have the heart of a viper, or you have the heart of a good person or a bad person. One of three things. Who does he call the vipers? Yeah, the religious of his day. The Pharisees. But the idea is found in verse 34 that our words come out of an overflowing heart. Your words reveal who you are. You may not even be thinking about it. A person's words express their true nature, what's really below the surface. We're always dealing with appearances and reality, aren't we? Well, the person appears to be, but are they really that? If you learn to listen, you'll be able to discern. But if you're always talking, you'll never learn because you'll never listen. You listen to another person's words. Let them talk. Let them talk. I tell parents this all the time. I say, let your kids talk to you. Yeah, but just stuff they say. (laughs) Don't worry about it. They're kids. The point is you want them to feel that you're a safe haven. They'll come and tell you anything if they feel that you'll receive them, accept them, not judge them, not condemn them, not tell them where they're wrong. You just be there for them. I promise you, as they continue to grow, they'll look to you. They'll come and say, Mom, Dad, I've been thinking some stuff. I want to talk to you about some stuff. Now, if they feel that you're going to be critical and judgmental and you raise them that way, they'll never, ever, ever tell you a thing. You'll be the last one to know. You learn to listen. I don't care if they talk foolishness to you. You have to maintain a calm exterior. (laughs) Even if inside you're going... And your response, because most of the time, they just need to process out loud. And as they're processing out loud, they're going to reach their own conclusions. They're going to realize the stupidity of their position. (laughs) Well, I guess that really isn't a very smart thing to do. I don't know. 
And you always have this out. You can always say to them, you know, I, I got to think about that a little bit. Let me think about it. I'll let me come back and we'll talk some more about this. So the door is always open for you to come back. Amen. <laughs> now my son was growing up. I'll tell you this little story. Some of you know this. My son was growing up. Rather than force myself to, you know, force him to talk, you know how you say, oh, well, how was your day? Well, that's fine. <laughs> you know, nothing, right? So from very early age, I would go into his room and i just lay on his bed. Most of the time I'd fall asleep. <laughs> I wanted him to be comfortable with me in his presence. And he'd always be at his desk, his computer doing stuff, just ignore me. Doesn't matter. I have a longer term goal. I just lay on his bed, fall asleep. And then one day, one day, he actually got away from the computer, turned around, and said, Dad, can we talk about something? There in a single one of us, there isn't a single one of us that wouldn't want somebody in our life that we could unburden ourselves to. With no fear of them condemning us, telling us how bad we are, correcting us. Is that true? God's that way. He's not threatened by anything we do and say. He just wants us to be open. So I submit to you, that when you learn to listen, you're going to hear stuff about people. You're going to discern and, and understand. But the reverse is true also because your words tell who you are. They reveal who you are. And a discerning person who's listening, they're going to gain insights that you don't even realize. Your words expose your motives and your desires and your ambitions, even when you don't think about it. Your real motives, your real desires, your real ambitions, not the apparent ones. And the discerning person will listen. A wise person will maybe even help you and guide you. Your words expose, in effect, your true character, your true thoughts. And your words expose your own spirit. I love this counsel. How many of you have heard this? Well, I just, I just want to follow my heart. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard somebody say that? Have you ever said it yourself? I'm just going to follow my heart. People hear it all, people say it all the time. Well, just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. I go, no! Don't follow your heart! Why? It just seems so right, seems so natural. Why does it follow my heart? No! Don't you know what Jeremiah says about the heart? What did Jeremiah say? Here it comes, here it comes. The heart is what? Deceitful. Above all things, it's beyond cure. Why would you follow your heart? Well, 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 what should I follow? What should I follow? The manufacturer's handbook. 
Before all else fails, read the instructions. <laughs> Rocket science, right? You see, what we do is due to our heart. If you have a right heart, your life will be on the right path. If not, it won't. We act, we behave, we do things because of what we are within. Our hearts, what we are within, determine our behavior. We live in a culture today when we're trying to remake people. You know that? We're trying to reform people. Reformation, simply reforming behavior and changing the outside, does absolutely no good. We have, we have a multi-billion dollar industry based simply on reforming the outside. It's like putting lipstick on a pig. <laughs> I love that expression. It does absolutely no good. It does no, it's still a pig. You just dressed it up on the outside a little bit. Reformation is not the answer to the ills of human nature. It is not the answer to the ills of society. Transformation. Transformation. Transformation of the heart, of the inner being of a person. That is the answer. Well, how do I get my heart transformed? You see, human nature cannot be made good. It has to be transformed. It has to be regenerated, the theological term. You have to be what? Born again. God says, I will give you a new heart. I'm going to remove your heart of stone and give you a soft heart. Wow. Only God can reach into the inner recesses of a person's spirit and change their heart. That's our issue. We need a heart change. We need a heart change. The answer to the world's problems is not political. Trust me. The answer to the world's problems is not legal, it's not psychological, it's not military, it's not even religious. It's spiritual. It's spiritual. What do you think that person's problem is? Spiritual. It all starts with the spirit. It all starts with a heart that is hard and needs to be transformed. What's that person's problem, do you think? Spiritual. It's spiritual. It's spiritual. We are, first and foremost, spiritual beings. And our problems emanate from the spiritual deadness that we originally experienced from God. We're separated from Him. It's a spiritual problem. We need a spiritual change. That's the problem. The fourth thing that Jesus tells us about our words that they must be accounted for. Ooh. Verse 36, all of our careless words, he says. Anybody here ever utter careless words? A few of you? The rest of you never uttered a careless word. 
unproductive words, worthless words, flippant words, irresponsible words, inappropriate words, broken promises, unkept vows, hypocritical words. Those are among the most careless words. And these words are better indicators of a person's true character than his or her carefully planned and prepared statements and speeches. What do they really say? Every one of us have uttered words that we wish we could just grab them and pull them right back. But they're out there like in the internet. You know, you can't get them back. Words. We're accountable for our careless words. Accountable. God hears them and he records every careless word we speak. We say, I don't believe that. You don't have to believe it. It's up to you. Just because you choose not to believe it doesn't make it any less true. If we're accountable for them, as Jesus says, then he must record them. Unprofitable words make us and show us to be unprofitable servants. Remember what Jesus said to those people at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, in those days, in the last days, many, not just a few, many will come to me and many will say, Lord, Lord, and they'll accredit themselves to him. They'll say, we've done this for you and we did that for you. And how will he respond to them? I never knew you. We never had a relationship. They're presuming they're doers of good. He says, get away from me, you doers of evil. Whoa, that's a bit late. It's not about accrediting ourselves to him. It's about being accountable. Even for every careless word we speak. Should we watch our speech? I think so. Our careless words must be confessed to him and repented. Not just our actions, our words. You come again to the Lord's table and you're saying, Lord, what, what words did I say? My wife and I do not come to church together. We don't want to get in a fight in the car. I have to get here early anyway, so. You come down this aisle, you approach the table, you say, what, what words have I spoken today, this week, last night, this morning? Confess them, repent of them. You come to the table. You don't want to come to the table in an unworthy manner, true? Flippantly. Our careless words must be confessed to God and repented. No word is insignificant to God because every spoken word reveals what's in our heart. Because God knows our hearts, our words are vitally important to him. Wow. Wow. Have you kept your vows? Have you kept your promises? I'm forever saying to married couples, I'm saying, did you ever, at any point in, in, when, you, when you got married, did you ever utter anything like this? 
for better or worse, in sickness or in health, till death do us part. Did you ever say those, anything like that? Yes. Did you mean it? Yes. Mean it today. Keep your vows. Otherwise, you're, you're just giving visibility of the fact that these are useless, utter, utter words. Am I making sense? The last thing that Jesus tells us is our words determine our destiny. Verse 37. Words are important to him because they determine our destiny. Be the basis for judgment because words reflect who we are. Gracious, kind, loving, edifying, profitable words will testify for us. Justifying us in the day of judgment. Ugly words, angry words, spiteful words, gossiping words, grumbling words, murmuring words. And I know nobody here grumbles and murmurs. Those are the kind of words that will testify against us and condemn us in the day of judgment. Beloved, remember, just as we are not saved by good works, we are saved for good works, right? Ephesians chapter 2. The same thing is true. We are saved for good words, It's very important to understand that. And it's in that sense that our words bring us either justification or bring condemnation. As Jesus says, for by your words you will be acquitted or by your words you will be condemned. Our words reflect who we are. Am I really a Christian? Am I really born again? Do I really have a new heart? It should be reflected not only in my actions but in my words, how I speak as I continue to grow and mature and become more and more like him, reflecting his character. Peter says this, for whoever would love life and see good days. How many would like to love life and see good days? Here's the key. You must keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. If you're not doing that, you're not going to have a good life. Proverbs 13.3. He who guards his lips guards his life, but he who speaks rashly comes to what? Ruin. Words, words, words. Amen? Father, thank you again for your, your instruction. Thank you for your word.